8 o'clock now in the East. The whistleblower complaint at the heart of the Democrats' impeachment inquiry into President Trump has now overnight been declassified. It could be released as early as this hour. Now the whistleblower complaint details what happened after that Trump-Zelensky phone call back on uh, July 25th. Somebody told this person about a phone call they were not part of. Did they have a political agenda? Did the whistleblower have a bias? This is a cover-up. This is a cover-up. Think about what we're talking about right here. Think about what the Democrats have just done to this country in the last week or in the last two years. On Thursday, just two days after Nancy Pelosi announced an official impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump, the House Intelligence Committee released the full whistleblower complaint to the public. Uh, this person claims to have heard from multiple U.S. officials that senior people at the White House intervened to lock down, is the phrase the letter uses, all records of the call, especially the official the complaint isn't especially long, but it will take your breath away. It says President Trump tried to use his office to, quote, advance his personal interests. And then his administration tried to cover it up. It comes just as acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, is about to testify on Capitol Hill about these matters. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? And this story is moving really fast. So I'm going to ask Slate Senior Editor Jeremy Stahl to come on and join me and go over what the heck happened in the last several hours. We recorded this conversation Thursday afternoon. We had just watched Acting Director of National Intelligence Joseph McGuire testify in front of the House Intelligence Committee. And I want you to just keep listening. Hey, listener, we've got a big favor to ask. One of our advertisers is conducting a survey. We would be grateful for your help with answering a few of their questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps the show. Go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. We're going to bring in Jeremy Stahl, who is the resident expert on all things crazy and incomprehensible. And uh, he's going to walk us through some of the events of the last few days. So welcome, Jeremy. I'm going to put that in my official title, Dahlia. Now that you've given it to me, I'm claiming that as my own. And and so many things have happened, Jeremy, but maybe let's start 560 years ago, uh, a.k.a. Thursday morning, when the whistleblower complaint was released to the public. It's nine pages. I find it to be a, a pretty damning document. I think the one thing that the whistleblower does right up front is say, look, I didn't hear these conversations with my own ears. I didn't see them with my own eyes. And I think the Republicans are using that to say, therefore, the whistleblower is making stuff up. But I think that the whistleblower is essentially saying, in the aggregate, I was hearing multiple reports that sort of fleshed out the same pattern over and over again, that all across uh, the government, U.S. officials really believed that the president of the United States was using the power of his office to, quote, solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 election. That's what this whistleblower is reporting. That's that's exactly what the person is reporting. And, and, and they're doing it according to their conversations that because of their position, they were able to have with more than a half a dozen U.S. officials. This complaint lays out a picture of a president who is unrestrained by notions of the rule of law and who is surrounded by people who are aware of this, discomfited by this, but unwilling to act themselves, it seems, except for apparently having conversations with this whistleblower who did then take action themselves. Yeah, that was really striking to me, too, that there were multiple people raising the red flag and doing nothing. The buck stops with the whistleblower because it seems like there's a hella lot of people who are very, very alarmed and doing nothing. Let's talk about the complaint, Jeremy. Uh, It was dated August 12th, but somehow it took until September 25th for the committees to see it. It seems as though the holdup there is Joseph McGuire, who's the acting director of national intelligence. As I understood it, the whistleblower statute says that had to happen a week after it entered his hot little hands. Can you just talk for a minute about why uh, he held on to it so long? Yeah, so you're absolutely right, right that the statute says that once the intelligence community inspector general 
who is Michael Atkinson in this case, receives a whistleblower complaint. He's supposed to, within 14 days, conduct a preliminary investigation, determine whether he deems the complaint credible and urgent. And then if he does, which he did, send it to the director of national intelligence, in this case, the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire. And McGuire was, according to the law, the statute says that once that finding is made, that the director of national intelligence shall forward it to the intelligence committees of both houses of Congress. And he obviously did not do that, which is which is the principal reason we're here at this point. On Thursday, he uh, testified before the House Intelligence okay. Committee. Although executive privilege prevented us from sharing the details of the complaint with the committees until recently, this does not mean that the complaint was ignored. If, if his explanation wasn't necessarily convincing, at least it was credible and potentially reasonable, which was just that this complaint against the president affected issues of potential executive privilege, which is why he needed to run it by the White House before forwarding it along. And that was his essential reason for not initially passing it along when he was obligated to by law. Secondarily, he said that after the White House Counsel's Office began to consider uh, whether or not it implicated executive privilege, he also had to go to DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel for a second opinion, apparently, on whether or not this constituted an urgent matter. Uh, the OLC's claim, which he obliged by, was that this was not an urgent matter because it did not fall within the authority of the director of national intelligence to oversee basically the president of the United States, which led Adam Schiff, uh, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee today, to basically basically conclude and point out that for all intents and purposes, the, that OLC opinion places the president of the United States above the law. But, but you're not suggesting, are you, that the president is somehow immune from the laws that preclude a U.S. person from seeking foreign help in a U.S. election, are you? What I, I am saying, Chairman Schiff, is that no one, none of us, is above the law in this country. Schiff pressed him on this point, and the DNI did acknowledge that this was a matter for Congress to investigate, which means, you no, know, whatever the president says about this in the end, it's not a witch hunt. And ultimately, it means that these officials need to be made to testify before Congress about what happened. And what you're saying is super important, Jeremy, because I think what we're not exactly clocking right now, but it's essential, is that actually this is process is working. The whistleblower statute works. The whistleblower is still somehow protected, right? The whistleblower has not been outed yet, which is why we have statutes protecting them. Uh, and now the process has worked because despite the White House's attempt and the Office of Legal Counsel's attempt to throw up a roadblock, congressional committees now have this document. So in a very, very profound way, we're actually seeing the guardrails of law and order clicking back into place. Clicking back into place is right. They were they were kind of left a little bit unhinged, but now they're they're back into place. And and I think that the key point there was despite the efforts of the Office of Legal Counsel, despite the efforts of the White House to ensure that this did not come out in a in a timely fashion. It was the decision of Michael Atkinson, an appointee of this president, to come to this committee following not advice from you or any law, but following his own conscience. Without his decision to do this, none of this is happening, correct? I applaud, Michael. I, I applaud Michael's uh, uh, the way he has done this. 
He has acted in good faith. He has followed the law every step of the way. The question is, Congressman, does it, did it, or did it? Because of Michael Atkinson having informed the congressional committee, the relevant congressional committees that this whistleblower complaint had occurred, that's basically the only reason that this got back on track and that we were able to see the process actually work. It's basically because of Michael Atkinson, the inspector general. What is it that the whistleblower uh, report adds to what we already knew on Wednesday after we got the readout of the calls? After that was released, largely unredacted, we had a sense of what that one phone call uh, was like. What does this uh, whistleblower document do to flesh out that story? So what it what it fleshes out, I think, are what the whistleblower alleges are efforts to cover up that phone call, to hide that phone call from not just public view, but from internally within the administration. And and what it essentially says is that what the whistleblower learned was that the White House had a special uh, classification and a special computer for very secret information that had incredibly limited access and that uh, officials and certainly the whistleblower felt that this call was placed in that computer for political motives, not for intelligence reasons, essentially to cover up that this call happened and to cover up what looks like an ongoing effort by the president of the United States to get Ukraine to interfere in our next election. And so that's, in some ways, the old adage is true, right? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. This is a story because White House officials were, quote, locking down the records of a call that had no classified information in it. What it did was compromise the president legally. That is what appears to have happened. And it's kind of crazy because this all, this all uh, partially centers around the president's efforts to, you know, use his personal attorney, who is not official, unofficial of the U.S. government, who uh, the DNI couldn't even say whether or not uh, Rudy Giuliani has any kind of security clearance whatsoever during his hearing. That that was one of the astonishing moments during today's hearings. But essentially, to act as a freelance foreign policy agent specifically for the president and what appears to be for his own personal gain and for his own personal purposes of damaging Joe Biden. This was known, though, within the last few months. The New York Times has been reporting on this, and and Giuliani has been openly admitting to these efforts. And you're right that it only blew up in this way once we learned the extent to which the government was going to try to hide this information. That was very, very troubling. Okay, so let's talk about Rudy Giuliani for a minute, because I think that at least two of the people that Trump continued to invoke in his July uh, phone call uh, with Zelensky, he keeps talking about Attorney General Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani as though they're his two divorce lawyers, right? Like, talk to my lawyers, talk to my lawyers. And as though they somehow work in tandem, as though, like you say, Giuliani has some official government role. Giuliani's, at this point, his Roy Cohn, right? He's his new Michael Cohen. He's just the fixer. And can you just describe, I know it's super complicated and comes from some of the fever swamps, but can you describe the two alleged conspiracies, alleged acts of corruption that Trump wants uh, the Ukraine to get to the bottom of? 
both? Yes. So the, so the first one is seeking the damaging information and the investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden, who is one of his potentially one of his the leading uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination. And Biden's role in the Ukraine in circa 2015 has been described as basically a messenger of U.S. Uh, foreign official U.S. foreign policy, European policy, and basically what all of the United States and its allies wanted at that time, which was for Ukraine's government to get rid of their prosecutor general and replace that person because that prosecutor general was not doing enough to investigate corruption. He, he applied this pressure, he commented on it, and the, the prosecutor was removed. And that effort is basically what is central to Giuliani and the president's complaints, because at the same time, his son, Hunter Biden, had been on a board of an energy company that had been investigated by that prosecutor who was not doing actual corruption investigations. What's been portrayed is that this was some kind of nefarious thing to end investigations of this company his son was working for. And it's funny, the Washington Post today reported that the, the prosecutor who is now somewhat at the center of these things, who the president had relied upon the Ukrainian prosecutor to, to bring these things back up, now says there is no indication that the Bidens violated Ukrainian law in any way. And this is the prosecutor that Trump has been relying upon. Basically, in all of that initial mess, the president is hoping that Ukraine will reopen all of its investigations around this and dig something up. That's the, the allegation is that the pressure was to bring this back to public light in a way where it would actually damage the Bidens rather than the information we have now, which is basically exonerating. Good. And and just quickly, let's just say that the second the second investigation is even nuttier and it has to do with the Ukrainians somehow having the DNC servers. And this is where Donald Trump thinks all of Hillary's deleted emails are. And it would implicate Ukraine for intervening in the 2016 election as opposed to Russia, yada, yada, fever swamps. One of the things that Donald Trump immediately said when the readout of the phone call surfaced on Wednesday was, nothing here, no quid pro quo, which is a little bit like what he said about no collusion, no collusion. Uh, but I wonder if you can help unpack whether uh, <laughs> in order to actually be problematic, Donald Trump would have had to say the sentence, I'm not giving you the money unless you indict Hunter Biden. That seems to be what would count as a quid pro quo, I guess. Is that the threshold? Does a quid pro quo matter? That standard is probably impossible. I don't know. Maybe maybe did Trump did say that. We don't have the full version of the call. So maybe he said something along those lines. But in what we do have, he did not say that. And what matters is that he put this pressure on Ukraine. He withheld this aid from Ukraine. He instructed them to talk to his attorney. He did this all simultaneously at the exact same time. 
And uh, he specifically mentioned what it was that he wanted repeatedly. He did actually say right after, right after the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, brought up this military aid, essentially, Trump says, we have a favor to ask you. And he immediately digs into the, the stuff about uh, investigating the servers and um, basically looking into the matters that Trump wants addressed. So like, in terms of direct quid pro quo and me want to investigate Biden now, you get money. Like that was was not going to be in the call. But what we do have is an implicit quid pro quo. Let's talk about J- Joseph McGuire's testimony Thursday. We've talked about it a little bit. He weirdly says over and over again, this was so weird. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. So I thought I'd take it to the White House, um, which is a little bit uh, of an improbable uh, defense. I am not familiar with any prior instances where a whistleblower complaint touched on such complicated and sensitive issues, including executive privilege. I believe that this matter is unprecedented. By and large, though, I think he came across, correct me if I'm wrong, as another one of those law and order guys. A lot of attention paid to his military background and to him being an upstanding uh, human being. In fact, it seemed that that was what Republicans wanted to litigate, that Democrats shouldn't criticize him. But it does feel as though, by and large, he was trying to take a, a Mueller-like posture of, I'm just a good guy and a solid citizen and a patriot doing my best under crazy circumstances. D- Democrats went had, had this very, very difficult balancing act, and they went out of their way to do both of these things as well as they could. One of the, the first thing was obviously interrogating this guy and getting to the bottom of why he took part in this delay of this release of information and really point out to him that had Michael Atkinson not acted, would this information have ever seen the light of day? While at the same time acknowledging that, you know, he made very strong statements promising to protect the whistleblower. He made very strong statements saying he had no reason to doubt Michael Atkinson's judgment after his own 14-day investigation of this whistleblower's complaint that the complaint was credible. He went out of his way to defend his intelligence people, and Democrats acknowledged that by pointing out and being very uh, gracious in their praise of his long and distinguished career of military and public service. So they had to do both things at once, and it seems like they did. And, And talk for a minute, Jeremy, about what the Republicans on the committee, what they were trying to establish Thursday and what if anything, they achieved? They were trying to establish that the director of national intelligence, the acting director of national intelligence was a good guy, was just doing his job, wasn't engaged in any cover up, and that he was being smeared by Nancy Pelosi and Democrats for not having obeyed the law, which is the Democrats continue to and have made that claim because the law is clear that it says you shall turn this over to Congress within seven days. And he didn't do that. So basically, Republicans were very harumphy at the notion that his, you know, ability to follow the law and his decency were challenged. And they were, on his part, very offended. But he didn't seem to take much away from that. And again, the Democrats were very respectful. 
And, and I guess now is a good time to just ask you Donald Trump's apparent response to the increasing pressure. He told a crowd uh, that he wants to know, quote, who provided information to the whistleblower, saying that whoever did so was close to a spy and that in the old days, spies would be deal- dealt with differently, end quote. You know what we used to do in the old days when we were smart, right? The spies and treason. We used to handle it a little differently than we do now. To make threats like that against whistleblowers is, it's very disturbing. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, how much more to say about it. As, as his uh, director of national intelligence was testifying that he was going to do everything in his ability to protect the whistleblowers, Trump was apparently making these comments. Mr. Chairman, my job is to support and lead the entire intelligence community. That individual works for me. Therefore, it is my job to make sure that I support and defend that person. You don't have any reason to accuse them of disloyalty to our country or suggest they're beholden to some other country, do you? Sir, absolutely not. I believe that the whistleblower followed the steps every step of the way. Let's talk just finally, Jeremy, if we could, about what happens next for uh, this particular whistleblower. Uh, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, House Intelligence Committee chairman, is saying that the whistleblower may testify before Congress as soon as this week. The New York Times is reporting on Thursday that we think now that the whistleblower uh, is a CIA officer who was just detailed to the White House. Does this whistleblower have to testify in order to move the ball forward? Isn't the point of all this to protect the whistleblower? What Adam Schiff said after the hearing had ended was that this complaint offered a very clear roadmap. And the whistleblower's identity, he can potentially talk to Congress with an expectation that he or she remains secret, but they, they, they probably do need to speak to the whistleblower in some way to flesh out that roadmap. And then also Michael Atkinson needs to testify about what, what his investigation entailed and why he found this whistleblower complaint credible. That's the inspector general. Jeremy Stahl covers all the things that I do not understand here at Slate. Jeremy, as ever, thank you. Thank you, Dahlia. That is the show. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Usually I host Slate's Amicus podcast. Today I am filling in for Mary Harris, who is at the Texas Tribune Festival. She'll be back with you soon. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. For more on all things impeachment, go to Slate.com. Ben Mathis Lilly has this piece up right now. Here's the title. Trump implies whistleblowers should be executed, which may conflict with rules protecting whistleblowers. You can nerd out on the role of the Office of Legal Counsel in this mess from Slate Dynamo, Mark Joseph Stern. And I have a piece up that is an interview with the whistleblowers lawyers. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... 
First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.